How you doing? Glad that you're here. It's funny, I, I know that it's a silly question to say, hey, what time in history would you like to go back to in, when you're in church? Because everyone's like, oh, well, I have to meet Jesus. Like, I mean, there's really only one correct answer. So, sorry about that. Um, and just in case it, it wasn't clear to you, and this is something I'm really excited about when Don and Jill kind of said, hey, do you, we've been talking with Pastor Kuko, we're thinking that we want to not go down to Tijuana this round because we have something else that's come up. The, all of the packing of these containers will be to help people who have been hurricane impacted in Puerto Rico and other places. That's why we're doing this. We're not just going to be manpower. We are going to do something to tangibly help um, for those people who have been affected by the, these weather things. And this would also be for the, hur- uh, the earthquakes and things like that because there's some crazy stuff going on around the world right now. And I'm so grateful for where we are and for the fact that we have been untouched. But that does not mean that we simply turn a blind eye to our brothers and sisters, and even those who are not yet sons and daughters. Everybody has been created in God's image. We want to love on all of them, right? We've been in the middle of a series, uh, and if you're just joining us today, we're in a series in which we have been unpacking what Jesus intended. Jesus came to inaugurate a brand new movement, and we've been asking ourselves a bunch of questions over the course of this series, such as, If Jesus came to inaugurate something that was brand new, this movement, then how on earth have we become, as a church, so utterly resistible? I mean, how have we gone from Jesus saying, go, be the church, to saying, hey, come to church so you can be bored? How have we gone from being a movement that is marked by love to being a group of people who are more often than not understood or or perceived by our judgmentalism and our arrogance. And even more importantly than all of that, is there a way to somehow get back to the heart of what Jesus originally intended? Now, um, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, one of the things that we've discovered as we've been navigating through this is that one of the reasons, perhaps the predominant reason for where we find ourselves today is not because new stuff got added to the gospel. It's that old stuff got added back in. Particularly, we've been talking about this thing called the temple model. And the temple model is the blueprint for every religion that you find around the world throughout history. And it's basically built upon the same pillars, although they look different in different places. You've got sacred places that are more important than other places, sacred places where you can somehow be close to God. And within those sacred places, you've got sacred people. More often than not, they are men. And those sacred people have access to, and really they're the only ones who have access to the sacred scriptures, whether they are scrawled on the walls or carved into stone or written on paper. They are the only ones who have access to those sacred texts. And they then get to, because they're the only ones who have access to it, they then get to tell all of the sincere followers who come to those sacred places to find out how to worship whatever deity that they happen to worship. They get to be the ones to tell them how to do it. And so they have a remarkable influence and power in whatever community they happen to find themselves in. And the reality is some of you are going, well, that sounds pretty familiar Because it seems in a lot of ways like that is what I see playing out even within the church. And the reason for that is we have been influenced by this temple model. But that is not what Jesus came to bring. Because what Jesus had in mind, this brand new movement, was radically different from the temple model. 
Jesus said, listen, I want you to be known by your love, not by your legalistic law keeping. I'm starting something that will be marked by self-sacrifice, not by animal sacrifice. Something, a movement that says that people are far more valuable to me than places. And so as you're sitting here this morning, know that to God, the person on your right and your left and sitting behind you and in front of you are more sacred than the building in which we reside. You're the temple. And that's an important distinction. Now, I want to let you know that today's message is going to be different from any other message I've ever given here and in reality, different from any message I've ever given, period. Because one of my core teaching values is that we open Scripture every week and that whatever I teach comes directly out of here. However, today, because last week we really unpacked a passage where we were, we were looking at how things kind of went sideways even for the early church and we spent a good amount of time in Scripture, today what I want to do is I want to take us on a historical tour from after the biblical texts were written throughout history to begin to unpack how did we go from there, this beautiful brand new movement that Jesus came to inaugurate, to here, where we find ourselves in. And I'm not just wanting to kick the church, all right? I'm not trying to pick on what we do. I simply want us to understand the context that has shaped who we are. Because if we don't learn from history, we're going to end up repeating it again and again and again, and we may not even understand why. So today, I want to give you a history lesson. And so most of our time will not be spent unpacking a scripture verse, but there's a reason for this, all right? So I want to begin in A.D. 70, the date that the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and it was sacked. And in fact, Jesus had warned, listen, in the, in the final days, the entire temple will no longer stand. There will not even be stones that will be stacked upon one another. And that's exactly what happened because the Roman centurions, after burning the temple, the gold that was in there began to run into the very porous stone. So they began to pull every single block down, stick them in the fire, then douse them with water. They would shatter and they were collecting up the gold. So even the stones of the temple were utterly wrecked. And in that moment, as it was as if God said once and for all, The temple model, as you have known it, is finished. It no longer stands. It's no longer the way that you approach me. Instead, now of going to a place to connect with me, you are the temple. My Holy Spirit resides within you, and you get to go and be the church. And the church at first lived that out. Now, they were definitely a persecuted people. The, the church was, it was illegal to be a Christ follower early on in the Roman government, or in the, in the Roman kingdom. You had Christians who were marginalized on the edges of society. They were viewed as a Jewish sect. And yet, even then, they had a profound influence on the culture in which they were in. Because you had um, Christians who were actually moving towards the poor. And what the pagans couldn't understand, what the Romans couldn't wrap their minds around, was the fact that these Christians wouldn't just care for their own poor. They would care for all the poor. They couldn't understand how when, when children were abandoned in the streets, either because they were imperfect or perhaps because they were a girl and you only wanted men to be able to carry on your name, 
the Christians would go and gather these children up and raise them as their own. What gives? They couldn't understand why these Christ followers would actually one another one another, right? Like, why would you love one another and care for one another and bear with one another's burdens and all those kind of things? Why would you share your property with one another? It doesn't make any sense. What really spun them out was the fact that these Christ followers didn't seem to be all that afraid of death. When they were confronted with you either reject, renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, or you get thrown to the lions, more often than not, they picked the lions. And on top of that, when there were pestilence and plagues that would enter into these urban centers, and all of the people with any means to leave scattered to the hills, the Christians were actually known for running into those places and moving towards the sick, taking them into their own homes, and beginning to rehabilitate them, even though oftentimes the person who was being the Good Samaritan would get sick themselves, sometimes even dying. And yet, in the midst of being a marginalized, persecuted sect of, of followers of Jesus, they were known for their love. And for the next 250 years, that predominantly was what the church was known for. They were living out this brand new movement without buildings to identify them. Rather, they were the movement. They were the ecclesia or the gathering of Christ followers. And then something happened on October 28, uh, 312 AD. Emperor Constantine, who was one of the rulers of the Western Roman Empire, was on his way to do battle against his counterpart, Maxentius. Whoever won was going to be proclaimed the supreme emperor of the, Roman, uh, the Western Roman Empire. And as he was on his way, you see a picture here. Uh, I think Raphael did this. It's hard to see on this. But basically, as he was on his way to battle, Constantine looked up in the sky and he had a vision. He could see a cross that was kind of superimposed behind the sun. And he either heard or some, some recollections say that he saw written these words, in this sign, conquer. Well, immediately, being a little bit superstitious and anything that can give him the edge, immediately he stops the whole baggage train, he gets some paint, he takes his knights and he says, okay, give me your shields. And he has people start painting crosses on all of their shields. And they go into battle and they win. And Constantine is declared the, Roman, the, the supreme Roman emperor. And he declared that his victory was due to that sign. And that sign he likened to the sign of the cross. Because may, may understand that in Rome, the cross up to this point had been viewed as a symbol of death, of humiliation, of criminality. And all of a sudden, the, the cross was radically redefined for Roman citizens. All of a sudden... Rather than a sign of failure and crucifixion, it became a symbol of victory. And not just victory militarily, it became a symbol of victory of Jesus, the Christian carpenter, the Messiah, who apparently rose from the dead, declaring that he had overcome sin and death once and for all. And Constantine, the supreme Roman emperor, became a Christ follower. Now, understand he was far more roman emperor than he was holy and, uh, and and 
he actually legalized. And just to give you an example of how he was more Roman emperor, he chose not to get baptized until he was on his deathbed because he wanted to make sure that all of his sins got covered. So he's going to wait until the very end to finally declare, yes, I'm in, and I want to have that kind of public declaration that I'm a Christ follower, just covering his bases. But he did something interesting because he became a Christ follower, because his rule was in many ways kind of precipitated off of his faith that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this Christian God that Jesus Christ represented, he was the one who had helped him become. He actually made Christianity the official religion. First, he legalized it. Then he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire, which would later on become known as the Holy Roman Empire. Though again, it was far more Roman and far more empire than it was holy. And I'm not suggesting that everything that Constantine did was bad. I mean, he really did implement some wonderful Christian moral things. For instance, he outlawed crucifixion, for one. That's a good step. He began to um, give financial benefits to those who would adopt children. And the practice of exposing your children to death if they didn't satisfy you was kind of put to an end. And he encouraged families to adopt. All good things. But his pulling Christianity into the center of the Roman Empire had an unexpected impact. Constantine not only made it legal, he elevated the church. He began to build buildings, cathedrals, over any place that uh, he heard that a martyr had died or been buried. He began to collect all of the different relics that he could find. Either he would buy them or he would simply confiscate them. And he began to fill these temples, these cathedrals with these relics so that people would want to come and see them and they would pay money to see them. He began to establish a, a new hierarchy of people who would be within these cathedrals overseeing all of the stuff. And so you had the Pope. You had these bishops and archbishops and all of these other individuals who were put into positions of power and authority. He even began to gather up all of the different letters and, um, and gospel articulations of Jesus' ministry that had been floating around out there. And they codified them all into a book. And then he took that book and they chained it to the altar and they said, all those sacred people in the hierarchy, they have access to being able to read this and then telling people what it says. And in that moment, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, took the temple model and shoved it right back into this brand new movement. And almost overnight, can we throw up the next one? Almost overnight, the Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to being an empowered majority. All good stuff. But at the cost of the temple model leaking back in, it had some other effects as well. For instance, Constantine said, you know what? The church is going to be exempt from taxes. That's a good thing. It's something that the church continues to this day to enjoy. However, all of the wealthy landowners in Rome said, well, this is great because I'm always looking for a way to save a penny. So they began to dedicate their property to the church so that they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. It paid to be a Christian under Constantine's rule. Unfortunately, the temple model was back, and in the process, the heart 
of Jesus' brand new movement, a heart that said, we, you, people will know you are my followers, my disciples, by the way you love one another, that got lost. Let me give you one exam, example of how that happened. During Constantine's rule, there was a disagreement that took place within the kind of Christian hierarchy that we have come today to know as the Arian controversy. But really it boiled down to the definition of a word. People within the church, and I'm talking about people in the higher up positions of the church, begin to argue about what does the word begotten mean? I'm sure this is something you talk about during dinner regularly, right? Actually, Sarah, I believe you may have had this conversation over dinner at some point. What does the word begotten mean? Does it mean, you know, isn't like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3:16. What does that word begotten mean? Because some people suggested, in fact, there was a guy named Arius from Alexandria, from which this controversy gets its name, who suggested, I believe that Jesus was born a man. And that it was only later on in life, after he had submitted himself to God's leadership and done what God wanted him to do, that God bestowed divinity upon him. So when we say he's his only begotten son, I believe begotten means that he, he was chosen and kind of ascribed divinity. And other church leaders are looking at the scriptures going, where on earth are you getting this? No, this is not right. Begotten Jesus was God. He was with God. I mean, have you ever read John 1? In the beginning was the word of the Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when God is speaking the world into existence, Jesus was with him. He was that word that God, through which God created everything, and it's only later on that Jesus took on flesh and became a man. So Arius, that's wrong. And this disagreement over a definition of a word began to pull at the fabric of the Christian community. And Constantine, being a wise leader, goes, if I don't do something about this, this threatens to take this whole thing down. And so he calls a council. He gathers up all of the important people within the Christian hierarchy. And he says, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Remember, he's an emperor. He's just trying to lead his people. And if the church is having a hard time, it's going to affect his empire. Guys, you've got to figure this out. And he calls the Council of Nicaea. And everybody sits down. And after weeks of haggling and arguing and votes, they decide... We are going to side against Arius, that Jesus was divine from the beginning. He only took on humanity rather than the other way around. They wrote the Nicene Creed articulating this. End of story. Go home. Everybody's happy again, right? Not so much because we know human nature. Just because they may have agreed that the Arian definition of begotten was not correct didn't mean everybody left on the same page. Didn't mean that everybody left buddy-buddy. In fact, there were a lot of hurt feelings. And this was not just a theological issue anymore. Because this is in the center of the most powerful nation in the world. Which means that anything that threatens, any definition that threatens the hierarchy, threatens people's power, threatens people's influence, threatens a lot of, you know, the, the stability of, of even their money. Money is tied to this. Land is tied to this. Control is tied to this. This became a political issue. And the Arians didn't agree with the decision. And the people were looking at the Arians going, I don't trust those guys. And Constantine goes, you know what? I need to put a kibosh on this before this flares back up again. And so he wrote an edict. Can we throw that up on the board? This is 
an edict that Constantine put out, and this is just a portion of it, but just listen to what he says. The great and victorious Constantine Augustus, I love that he, le- he, he, he leads with how great and victorious he is, just to remind you, I'm in charge. The great and victorious Constantine Augustus, to the bishops, to the sacred people, and to the laity, to everybody else, I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius, not just all of his writings, any writing, and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. Very holy, very loving, Constantine. Yes. And suddenly, within the church, theological thought becomes, and what is considered to be heresy by some people becomes punishable by death. And within the holy church, What you believe is more important than how you behave. Almost overnight, the church became creedal in nature. And what I mean by that is they began to write down their perspectives. Anytime somebody had a disagreement about something, they would write a creed to articulate exactly what was acceptable to think. And these creeds are beautiful. Some of you have heard or memorized even the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon. I mean, there's tons of these creeds. All of them are beautiful articulations of theology. But, and here's a really big deal, in none of them, for the most part, is there any mention of love. They all have everything to do with the head and not the heart. And you go, well, why? Why would we focus on thought and not on action, on, on, on how we treat people and how we feel about people? Because remember, when these Christian leaders were writing these things, they were being supported by the emperors. They had to get them signed off on by the emperors because they were only serving by the blessing of the emperor, and the emperors had bad behavior. So rather than focusing on behavior, let's focus on thought. Let's focus on articulating this is what we believe rather than how we behave. And consequently, we don't have any records of anybody ever being arrested, ever being killed because they loved either too much or too little. But we got tons and tons of examples of Christians arresting other Christians, Christians killing other Christians because they thought wrong. And suddenly the temple model was back, only it was the Christian version. You have a new brand or a new breed of sacred people residing in these sacred, beautiful cathedrals, taking the sacred texts that have now been codified and written into Latin and then chained to the altar so that only they have the ability to read them, understand them, and then tell other well-meaning worshipers how to live And because this new breed of spiritual people have the power, everybody from the king on down began to fear them. Because these guys had the ability to tell you whether or not you were saved. These guys had the ability to tell you whether or not you can go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And so even the king was controlled by these popes from time to time. 
Fast forward to the 11th century. And you've got Pope Urban II, who starts looking around and goes, you know, I'm not happy about the fact that we've got a bunch of pagans, we've got a bunch of Muslims living in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land, in the very city where Jesus did a majority of his ministry, in the place where the temple used to reside. We have unwashed pagans. This shouldn't be. And so Pope Urban II issued an edict. He called for the first Christian, what is that, crusade. The first crusade. And he said, listen, if anybody is willing to go and fight to retake Jerusalem, all your sins will be forgiven. That's a pretty lofty promise, right? Well, of course, if you're living in that time and you're well aware of your sins, you're, being, you're going to be like, I'm all over that. I, w- I want to have my sins forgiven. So wealthy landowners and knights signed up by the thousands and they raced off burning and pillaging across Europe all the way to Jerusalem in the name of Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus loves winning. As they were going, something else insidious happened. These guys who were told their sins were going to be forgiven for taking back Jerusalem began to think, well, hey, if we're taking back the city where Jesus was killed and our sins are forgiven for that, well, then we should probably punish the very people who we think are responsible for killing Jesus in the first place. And suddenly a great... The, And a spirit of anti-Semitism, the likes of which history had never seen before, rose up. Jewish men, women, children, entire families were murdered. Their land was confiscated. Their wealth stolen by men who were on their way to do the will of God. This is the reality. And in this moment, this beautiful movement that Jesus came to inaugurate almost came to a screeching halt. Thankfully, there's always been a remnant. And even in the darkest hours, there's always some people who don't lose sight of the main point. And there was, though they weren't perfect in any way, shape, or form, there was a monastic movement that kind of moved away from, the, from society and kind of got back into the periphery so they could worship God in that way. There were others, handfuls of people within this structure that just went, this isn't right. You know, they were trying to change it. Fast forward then to 517 AD. I believe it was April 6th, 1517, in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Guys like Martin Luther and other reformers weren't trying to get rid of the church. They wanted to reform the church. They wanted to change it from the inside out, which is why we call it the Reformation. They were trying to help the church get back onto its feet and get rid of some of this temple model thinking that had so completely kind of gotten encrusted over it that it was not what Jesus had in mind. Of course, the people within the church, they didn't see all of those things, and so they just saw these reformers as a bunch of protesters. Hence, we call it, hence they were called or known as Protestants, because they were protesting. But here's the thing. 
Martin Luther, when he stood up to nail his 95 theses onto the door at the church in Wittenberg, that was not him trying to undermine the church. That was not him trying to pick a fight. That was him simply saying, here's some concerns that I see. Because he was one of the few people who had access to the scriptures. He was one of the few people, because he was a Greek scholar, because he was a monk, he had access to the Bible. And he read the Bible. And when he read the Bible, he said, I don't see anywhere some of these things that I see affecting the church, but they don't seem biblical. Nowhere do I find any biblical support for the selling of indulgences. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that was basically the church's way of raising capital to do whatever they wanted to do. They're building campaigns. We need some more capital. I tell you what we'll do. Start going out and telling people, if you'll give us $1,000, we will give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. So the next time you sin, you can just cash that in. You're good. You're already covered. And Martin Luther's going, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that is supported. Nowhere in Scripture, when I'm looking around, do I see any articulation that a bishop has the power to say who goes to purgatory or for how long they go there and what gets them out. In fact, I don't see any support for purgatory at all. So... Martin Luther and nailing that, those 95 theses, these were questions that he had for the church and he was asking for conversation about it because he wanted to see the church be the beautiful brand new movement that Jesus had intended it to be. But it wasn't perceived that way by the church and so he was excommunicated. Not that he probably lost a whole lot of sleep over that because he didn't believe that the Pope or any bishop had the power to excommunicate anybody from God, but still. And around the same time that this was going on, the printing press was invented, which all of a sudden gave these reformers an ability to undermine some of the power of the church. Because they believed that one of the issues was that there was a select group of people who had access to the scriptures, who would tell people what they meant, and because of that, they held all the power. And so guys like Martin Luther in Germany and guys like William Tinsdale in, um, in Europe said, you know what we're going to do is we are going to translate the scriptures into our native languages so that the, the sincere followers can hold it in their hand and they can decide for themselves what it means. Now, of course, this did not go over well with the church because they were undermining their power. And anytime you try to mess with a power broker's power, it does not usually end well for you. And we saw a couple weeks ago, William Tinsdale was burned at the stake because he tried to translate the Bible into English. Martin Luther was hunted like a common criminal throughout Germany because he tried to translate the Bible into German. And yet he said, it's worth it. Because we must remove the Pope and all of these other sacred people from the position of extreme and utter authority. They can no longer be the ones to articulate what is or isn't. We need a new foundation, and we're going to make the Bible that foundation. So we need to get the Bible into people's hands. Can we throw that quote by Martin Luther up? This is what he said. A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest Pope without it. A simple layman armed with scripture. But there was an unexpected consequence to this line of thinking. Because when all you're going to do is, within the power structure, you're going to remove one person, the Pope in this instance, and you're going to insert the Bible instead, and then you're going to arm people 
with the Bible, it's going to have an unintended consequence in that people are going to begin to use this as a weapon to force people to think the same way they do. And so people began running around, all of these Protestant reformers began running around with their scriptures and they would pull out their proof texts and they would use it to beat one another into agreeing with them. And so the Protestant Reformation split into two, four, eight, 16, 32, and on and on and on. It continued to split into different denominations. Today, there are over a thousand different denominations of the Protestant Christian church. And I'm sad to say that none of them separated because one group loved more than another group. Or one group loved differently than another group. No. They separated because one group interpreted Scripture differently than another group. They have a different interpretation. And therefore, when they would split, both sides thought they were on the right side of the interpretation. And within all of this, with the thousands of denominations that are a whole lot of temple model with just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in, in the midst of all of this, love lost. Now, I'm not sure if this next part actually happened, okay? But I can just imagine. It's always nice when your pastor goes, "Ah, I'm just going to make something up, okay? (laughs) All of that history, this is just a conjecture. At some point, Jesus and Paul are up in heaven, and they're just wandering along. And they look over at the state of the church. They start shaking their heads. Like, how on earth? This beautiful thing that we started turn into this. And Jesus looks at Paul and goes, I don't know what else I could have done. I mean, before I died for them, I gathered my disciples up, I washed their dirty, stinking feet, and then I said, in the same way that I've loved you, now go love other people. And this is how people will know that you're my disciple, by the way you love. Paul's nod and he goes, yeah, Jesus, you know, that's pretty clear. I said almost the same thing, but I actually wrote mine down. I said, the only thing that matters is faith, expressing itself or working itself out through love. And while Jesus and Peter are talking, I can see John walking up and going, yeah, guys, man, I'm right there with you. I mean, I said, Because of the way that God has shown his love for us, now you too should love others. And they'll just kind of shake their heads like a couple of minutes of silence. I'm sure John would probably say something like, eh, I blame Peter as he walks away, right? I don't know if that's what actually happened. I don't know if that conversation ever took place. But the question for me that I cannot help but ask is how come the temple model keeps coming back like B.O. on a teenager? (laughs) Why won't it go away? Why are we so stinking attracted to it that we keep inviting it back into the ecclesia, the gathering of Christ followers? And I would suggest that one of the reasons why it keeps coming back is because there's a little bit of temple model in each and every one of us. It's been shaped by the culture in which we reside. And that temple model 
acts like a, a magnet next to the, the spiritual compass within each of us, constantly pulling it back towards more temple model thinking. And I know that some of you are probably going, ah, okay, maybe in some of these other heathens in here, but certainly not me. I mean, I'm Darlene Dickey. I got no temple model in me, baby. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of questions for you, questions that have been absolutely rocking me this week. Let's just see. You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think about this. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without crossing the line? Temple model thinking. Because within that mindset, we treat God like he's stupid. And we say, you know, God, it's not that I really want to get all that close to you. Really, I want to get close to sin. I just don't want to tick you off. So um, how close can I get? Because temple model thinking is all about the rules. Here's the law. We'll draw the line. If I, I haven't broken the law, I have broken the law. I haven't broken the law, I have broken the law. How close can I get before I break the law? Because I don't want to tick you off, but I really like my sin. Temple model thinking. Have you ever felt guiltier about missing church or mass or confession than you have about mistreating somebody at school or at work? Temple model thinking. Because I don't remember any time that Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples by how frequently you make it to church. But he did say, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Because the temple says that places are way more important than people. And Jesus said people are far more important than places. When you have failed morally, and I'm just assuming that we're all sinners in here, okay? Because that's the foundation that we all stand upon is grace and not upon our good works. So when, not if, you have failed morally, either with someone or maybe against somebody, maybe you've hurt somebody, are you more concerned with how God is going to treat you than how you have treated somebody else? Are you more concerned with what God is going to do to you than what you've done to that person that you either sinned with or against. Temple model thinking. Because within the temple model, we are the center. Our standing with God is the imperative. That is the most important thing. The other people are just there to help us get what we want. Do you believe that there's some ritual that you can do within the church that can absolve you of sin and remove your need to make it right with the person you've sinned against. And and let's all agree, there is grace, and thank Jesus for that. But nowhere do I see where grace then absolves us from having to actually make things right. I know, Alice, it's not there. I've looked. Instead, Jesus said something like this. If you're going to make a sacrifice to God and along the way you realize that you've got a friend or a a person, a neighbor who has something against you, you may have sinned against them, you may have done something and you're just, you got in a fight with your wife and you're just not right yet. Forget about going and taking this. First go back and make it right with them. Go and be reconciled. Then come back and give your gift because God can wait. 
Last one. Are these fun? Are you having fun? Suck. <laughs> Do other people's sins elicit a sense of pride or like I'm better than them? When you see somebody struggling with something that you don't struggle with, does it secretly kind of puff you up like, I'm so much better of a Christian. Thank you, God, for not making me like that person. If our theological perspectives get in the way of us actually loving people because we think differently politically or sexually or relationally or culturally, simple model thinking. Is any of that in you? As I am way too well aware of it, it is in me. Because just a little bit of that kind of thinking will totally change the way that we approach God and the way that we relate with other people. And I just think about for a moment, what would it be like if we the ecclesia of God, the gathering, the assembly, the people that have been called by his name could rest in what he's done for us and actually live out of the love that he's lavished on us. But I suspect that one of the reasons we keep getting drawn back to temple model thinking is because deep down inside, we don't actually believe the gospel we have a hard time accepting that although we've messed up and there's nothing that we could do to make ourselves right. Some of us don't agree with that. Some of us think, yes, there is a way I can make myself right. I am going to do it. I'm going to be really working really hard to be a good person. And we begin to build broken stairways to heaven as if we could somehow earn our way back into God's good graces. Or some of us just go, no, I've screwed up way too much and I know I could never make up for it, but there's no way that God could ever forgive me. I don't care what he's done on the cross. And it's like, if we can't accept the gospel at face value, then we will go through our lives like a, a, like a frightened puppy that's been beaten a little bit and is, is kind of shaking every time somebody gets around like, are we okay? Are we okay? Am I, am I in trouble? Are you okay with me, God? Did you see what I did over here? Did you, you know, forget about that. I, I, I made it up for by doing this. And I made it church. I even gave some money. Aren't you proud of me? Are we okay? And if we could just remember the simple truth that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that anyone who is willing to die for you is for you. If we could just rest in that, then we could take our eyes from anxiously peering up towards the heavens in fear that God is looking to strike us down the moment we step out of line. And we could rest in how much he loves us, that we are reminded of it by the cross. That's how much he loves us, that while we were even still in open rebellion to him, Jesus died for us. That's how much he loves us. And if we could take our eyes from worrying about that, and that doesn't mean that we don't still love God, and we're going to talk a lot about this next week. We're going to talk about what that relationship looks like next week. But if we could somehow lower our gaze from anxiously looking up there, we could actually begin to see the people around us that Jesus came to die for. And he says, now you've not only been redeemed back into relationship, but now you get to go be my representative. 
Could you imagine if we actually lived out of the confidence that God is for us, so that we get to be for other people, that God loves us so much that we now get to reflect his love in our schools and in our workplaces and when we're going and doing, you know, water aerobics? I know you're out there. I heard Eric Lowe did some water aerobics this week. That's pretty awesome. I don't know. Just threw him under the bus. Sorry about that, Eric. All that to say, next week we are going to talk about how our relationship with God is affected by this horizontal relationship with the people that are around us and how we love him by loving others. But here's my challenge this week. Here's what I want us to leave with as the the worship team comes forward. And we're going to respond by just thanking God for his grace. But here's my challenge for you this week. I want you every time that that feeling of, am I okay, comes up, just remember, God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for being for me even when I'm not for you. Now, God, help me to know how to reflect that love to this person, to my neighbor, to my spouse, to my kids when I just want to ream them for not listening to me even though I don't always listen to you. Sorry about that. I know it's hypocritical, but whatever. I'm the parent now. Guilty. What does love require of me? Let that be the question you ask before you act in anything this week. What does love require of me? What does it mean to be a reflection of God's love? And let's just see what he does with it. Father God, I thank you so much that you put up with these jars of clay that so imperfectly pour out your love that sometimes it actually tastes a little bit more like the jar than it does the pure, life-giving water that you filled us with. I pray that you would I pray that you would help us make sense of some of the things that we have done in your name and recognize, God, that we've made some mistakes and yet you love us anyway. And you say, okay, now, don't let that hinder you from loving the people all around you. Would you give us the eyes to see the people around us and would you give us hearts that reflect your heart so that we can love? Now we just want to worship you for being so stinking patient with us. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.